If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We'll never be able to afford that. Greg, give me something that'll melt my face. Congratulations. You just started listening to Bantha Banter, a Star Wars chat show. This is a show by fans, for fans, and featuring fans. You might be surprised how much we all have in common. Hello and welcome to Bantha Banter, a Star Wars chat show. I'm your host, Jeff, and today I am very excited, guys. I have uh, uh, an honest-to-goodness professional writer on the show uh this is the first of many because i'll be interviewing Corey club from coffee with kenobi in a, in a couple of weeks and he is also an honest to goodness professional writer but uh the, the my guest today uh is has, has sort of carved out a niche for himself that quite frankly i'm extremely jealous of uh, um we're talking with mark belomo mark say hello to everybody hello to everybody and mark makes a living writing about toys and mark I, I'll just get this out of the way. I'm extremely jealous of you. I'm extremely jealous of your life. Don't even know you, but I want to be you. So the first question I have for you, before we even learn anything about you, is how did you manage to find yourself in the business of writing about toys? Um, I think I kind of, I got there by the back door. I've, I was a, a really small kid. Uh, in a really small elementary school. I think our graduating class was like 18. Wow. I was the smallest. I was the most introverted. So I got picked on pretty relentlessly. Um, my mom's not from this country. Both my mom and dad worked about seven days a week. So, yeah, I wasn't a latchkey kid, but I, I kind of retreated into escapist fantasy and science fiction from a very early age, you know, like four or five. So, you know, toys were, were my... Um, my my refuge, you know, my safe haven. Um, so I really, between uh, uh, superheroes and Star Wars and G.I. Joe and Transformers, that's where I spent most of my time in my formative years. And uh, I uh, I went away to uh, to a Catholic school for high uh, a Catholic school for for my high school years, and I got kicked out of that. I, I had to go to an academy. Um, and uh, I think I finally kind of reinvented myself in, in community college and college and started applying myself and, and writing. I, in in uh, grad school, I studied American modernism, uh, American modernist writers like Faulkner and Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Eliot and Pound. And I, uh, I, every paper that I wrote in grad school, I tried to present it at a conference and if it was well-received, well I tried to make every one of those conference presentations into a published essay. And that was pretty ambitious. I only published a few of those, but they were very well-received. I think I pub published a few articles on Hemingway and, and one on Robert Penn Warren and, and maybe one on Faulkner and one on Maddox Roberts. And because I had those writing samples, I sent them to some composition and rhetoric textbooks uh, Bedford St. Martin's and Thompson's Engage books, and, and I started writing 
instructional apparatus, and then I started writing instructor's manuals for college textbooks. And it was nice. It was fun. Uh, but I remember being in, like, my, uh, my, my advisor's office in grad school, and I was doing pretty well, and I was thinking about going on for a Ph.D., and I think this was back when you could actually smoke inside. So he was smoking a pipe <laughs> and he tapped his pipe into his ashtray and said, so Belomo, what do you really want to do? And I said, what do I really want to do? I want to write books on toys and comic books. <laughs> and he said, can you make money doing that? And I said, well, I, I don't know if I can make money doing it, but, but I'm going to try. So about a week later, I was in my office. I had a part-time job at, at a university in upstate New York. And I was reading Toy Shop Magazine, and this was like uh, probably October or November of 2003. And Toy Shop Magazine, back in the day, was looking for contributors. So I had always had like a 50-page Microsoft Word document full of my action figures and probably a 100 to 120-page Word document of my comic books, and I sent those along, and I sent a couple writing samples from the textbook companies and uh, from the academic papers I published, and they said, well, you know what? We like your writing style. Why don't you go out and for this Christmas review a bunch of toys? So I think that was the time when Transformers Cybertron was out. Maybe Sounds about right. Yeah, between Transformers Cybertron and Transformers Energon. So I reviewed, I think, the, the Energon Optimus Prime. I reviewed some Zivaz toys. I reviewed a bunch of stuff. And they really liked it. And I don't know if uh, the guy who I replaced is listening right now. I hope he's not. But they got rid of their, the guy who did their action figure column. They hired me, and I wrote two columns on action figures, one on vintage action figures and one on modern action figures a month for a period of about five years. And then uh, in the interim or, or between those articles, I wrote books. My first book was The Ultimate Guide to G.I. Joe. Then I did uh, Warman's Action Figure Field Guide. Then I did... Which, uh, Taylor, which my friend Taylor has. I co-host and talking toys with Taylor and Jeff. Oh, right now. Yeah, yeah he has, I, I believe he... I know he has a field guide and I'm pretty sure he has the, uh, the, the G.I. Joe... The, the first one you mentioned as well. Yeah, and, and they, uh, they just kept giving me projects um, little by little, and I started kind of building up a reputation um, because I think what I try and do with, with my books is I try and do two things. I try and look at these toy franchises this, with the same respect and with the same critical lens, I would, American modernist writers, um, with the same reverence, you know, I'm trying to add respectability to what we do. And I find that a lot of people, a lot of everyday people who are not initiated or initiates or acolytes into what we do with toys and comic books and action figures kind of look at us as if we're the comic book guy from The Simpsons. Yes, you're absolutely right. And what I'm trying to do is kind of redeem popular opinion. So to make it look like this is, you know, and I always start it with, folks, in, in the year 2000, with the X-Men films, if superhero movies didn't exist, Hollywood would literally be in the toilet. These superhero films saved Hollywood. Um, so, and, and we can throw Star Wars in there and Transformers in there. You know, we're very lucky. I'm very lucky to be living in the age that I am and. And the other, the other thing that I consider when I'm writing my books is, is really utility. I've always been of the mind that um, if you buy a, one of my G.I. Joe books or my Transformers guide or my Star Wars guide, I want you, if you whether you're a collector or whether you own a, a collectible store, I want you to be able to take a box of vintage toys, dump them out on your table, and using my book, I want you to be able to pair up the figures with the accessories and the vehicles and the play sets with their parts. So the, the two goals are, are to redeem popular opinion, to give us, to elevate um, the ideology of action figure collecting into the national conversation. And the second thing is for utility. 
you know, I want it, I also want it to be fun. I want it to be conversational. You know, I, I often bring up, um, in these interviews, I'll bring up uh, the catcher, a catcher in the rye. And, uh, when you look at that book, you've got this one kid who's striving to go back to that moment of innocence. When, when everything seemed to be going right, you have no responsibilities, you come home from school, and what are you going to do? You're going to watch cartoons from 2.30 till 5 o'clock, and then you're going to play with toys, and maybe you'll do some homework or lie to your parents about doing homework, and then you're going to play with toys and read some comic books and go back to that time before you entered that world of experience, and you have things like wives and bills and mortgage payments so so that's probably probably more even more important than elevating the conversation and and the utility is i want to take readers of these books back to a more innocent a, a better vanished time to borrow those words from from the rush song red barchetta you know i want to take you back to that better vanished time where where things seem to be a little bit simpler Folks, this guy has referenced uh, Norman Mailer and Rush in the same story. Uh, I'm clearly out of my league uh, class-wise here, but I love what you I love what you have to say about it because I I, I wrote a review of the book that is will be up on uh, Coffee with Kenobi uh, at on the uh, 25th, and in it I mentioned that the book that we're discussing, the which is called The Ultimate Guide to Star Wars. To vintage Star Wars action figures, 1977 to 1985, I mentioned that it reads like a print version of the action figure exclusive episodes of Talking Toys with Taylor and Jeff that my friend Taylor and I produce uh, once a month. For great, Star Wars great, figures. great shows. I've, I've listened to a few of them, and they're very well done. Thank you, thank you very much. And oh, that's thank you. That along that what, what you were talking about about you know trying to go back to you know sort of recapture a little bit of that that feeling that you had when you were a kid is really all what talking toys is about. It's not about regressing to childhood, but it's just about saying, you know what? It's okay. If as adults, we get just as excited about toys as we did when we were kids or anything really, but it's just that Taylor and I are sort of focused on toys. That's, that's how we sort of hang on to our, our, our youth, not, and, and again, not in the way that, we're hanging on and, and staving straight, you know, sort of staving off adulthood, but it's just hanging on to, like you said, that, that innocence, that maybe naivete a little bit, but you oh, know sure, what? Yeah. It, it makes my, it makes my worldview a lot happier. Well, and, and I'll, I'll build off what you're saying. And, and this is something that I think about or, or that I haven't thought about in a long time. And just this past year, I think I was going into, I, I, uh, where I live, my house is about uh, strategically located, about a quarter of a mile to a half a mile away from a Toys R Us, a Super Walmart, uh, a Target, and a couple other collectible stores. So, you know, there's a reason why I bought my house where I did. And uh, I was going into, where was I going? Uh, Toys R Us. And... I caught myself thinking, I hope they have the newest wave of three and three quarter inch Star Wars black figures. Okay, so I have that anticipation in my soul as I'm walking into the store. And you know this, nine times out of ten, they're not going to have the new stuff there. Especially not these days, yeah. No, it's gotten, no. It, well, 2000, 2000, the last half of 2014 was not good. No, no, no. And after Christmas, they're not going to refresh those pegs but maybe once every couple weeks. Right. So I went in and they had, you know, they had the latest assortment. And, and when, I, when I saw that, I got excited. And that level of euphoric excitement is the, is the exact same sensation that I felt when I was a kid in 80, 81, 82, 83, when I went into a... a a KB toy store or an Ames store or a Grant or a Caldor and saw, oh my God, oh, here it is, the, the latest, oh my God, it's, it's, a, it's an Imperial Stormtrooper in Hawk Battle Gear. I've never seen this before. I can't wait to take this home, open it up, and I still get that excitement, that level of excitement. It's the same thing that I felt when I was a kid. And I don't think that 
that people who aren't toy collectors, I wonder if they get that same type of excited Christmas morning fluttering sensation that we do when we're going into these toy aisles or when, you know, in, in anything that they do. So I consider myself very lucky. Not only do I, do I have the privilege to feel that sensation when I'm looking for new toys, when I'm looking for Transformers Generations, when I'm looking for the latest 50th anniversary G.I. Joe figures or Star Wars Black 3 and 3 quarter inch or the latest Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle figures, do I often wonder do they feel the same thing in, in their day-to-day -day ablutions, you know, on this planet that we do. And I, I think we're, we're probably really lucky to be able to feel that. We are. I, I can speak a little bit to this. My brother is pretty much the exact opposite of me. I'm an actor, I'm a performer, and podcaster. My brother is a computer programmer, software engineer, so he's very analytical-minded. But he's also very into high-def audio, and he can talk at length about this new cable that he's got that's going to pass through from his receiver to his speakers and make it sound 5% better than it sounded before with the same sort of passion and glee that I, that you and I talk about the star Wars black series with. Okay. And I, it's probably just as, uh, just as tiresome to hear me talk about it as it is for me to hear him talk about it. It's, is part of it. you know some people it's sports for some people for us it's it's toys of course i guess for us based on our conversation pre-show it's we got a little bit of the sports the sport head to us as well yeah yeah uh, sports is is a, a minor religion to me sometimes <laughs> so so you okay so tell us where 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 in the country are you located at the moment are you still in in new york i'm in the hudson valley area of new york i'm about 90 miles north of new york city and you, you just you make your living as an author. Do you, do you have a day job on the side? Or oh, I, I, I don't make my living as an author at all. The, the author thing is what I do when, I, when I'm not at my day job. Okay, that's, and that's what I was wondering about because I have a, I have a friend who writes books along the same lines as yours. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's the only job that she has, but it's because she is retired from her, her, her career. And right so I, I do know that it is difficult to, to make a living doing this, this type of writing. So... How how do you, you know, people ask me all the time because you know I mentioned I'm an actor and I'm a podcaster and I do I have a day job as well and they ask how do you how do you uh, balance that and I said well it just means I have to be very diligent when I have free time to make sure that I have everything done that I need to get done before I can just relax and let everything go. Do you find yourself with that sort of sort of balancing act as well? Yeah, there's, there's, you know, in my life, there can't be any wasted motion. I mean, right now I've got... That's a good way to put it. That's, yeah. Yeah, right now I've got uh, the PR to do for the Star Wars book. I've got um, Transformers Classics uh, Volume 8 due. I've got G.I. Joe the Complete Collection Volume 7. Uh, I've got a, a million, multi-million dollar grant that I have to write for my college, or uh, about 130 people lose their jobs. Ooh, um, no pressure. So, yeah, no pressure. But it's just a matter of if you only get one shot at living on this planet, you might as well live it all the way up. So, you know, I, I, I'm probably only sleep between three and a half and, and five hours a night. Um, but that's because I'm just so excited to get out there and and do all the stuff that I do. I mean, I'm very I'm very lucky. I You know, I work at a college. I'm an administrator at a college. I, I write books about toys and pop culture when I'm not there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky, but, but I work very hard at it. You know, the second I'm in the door from the university, I work till I go to bed, whether it's researching or reading or writing or I'm, I'm always um, doing something um, related to, to writing books. Uh, there's a lot of research that takes place as well. Oh, I can imagine. And it's it's the same way with you know with with doing these podcasts that I do. You know, when I have any free time, I'm either researching something or I'm editing or I'm you know trying to schedule other stuff. And yep. and I have people that say, D you, doesn't it get? Don't you get exhausted? And I say, well, every once in a while, yeah, I I kind of say, you know what? I'm just going to take the weekend off and not do a thing. But for the most part, it's it really is a labor of love, and it doesn't feel like work when you love what you're doing as much as 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 you seem to. Yeah, and I think there's a, a certain compulsion to it. Like I'm, 
I, I don't think I've taken more than three days off in a row since my honeymoon in like 2006. But that's because if I'm at a beach or on a vacation, I kind of have this compulsion where I feel like I, I should be uh, working. <laughs> you know, I, I, because I love what I do writing these books, you know, a, a day off means I could have written uh, an article for Mental Floss. You know, a day off means I could have put in a pitch for a book that might have gotten a bite. So, you know, I, 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 I don't. I don't really think of this as work. This is stuff I would do if I didn't get paid. So, right. you know, I, I, I love it. And, and if you only have a certain amount of years on this planet, I mean, I want to do as much as I possibly can. Do you think that work ethic comes from, you, you mentioned that your parents both worked typically seven days a week. Do you think watching them do that sort of informs your own work ethic? Oh, yeah. It's, it was totally modeling behavior. My mom and my dad, I mean, when my dad came home from work, he... He had a garden, probably 1,800, 2,000 square feet, and he worked on that and had his own, you know, he he grew it or killed it, and we ate it, so. That's outstanding. I mean, that's, and my mom, my mom is a seamstress, and she always worked, uh, and she still does. She's retired. Both of them are retired, but they both still work, um, but she's a seamstress, and she always worked a certain number of hours in, like, a, a fashion store at an outlet mall. So she could garner customers for her seamstress business, and and she's one of the busiest seamstresses in upstate New York, and she's very good at. She makes wedding gowns. So, so you're you're really just continuing the family business. Yes, just yes, in a different yes. avenue. That's that's yes, that's absolutely, great. Absolutely, without a doubt. Yes, that's great. Um, I know that you have, and from the sound of it, even more extensive collection than I thought of toys. Do you? What is your favorite toy line of all time? You know. It really fluctuates based upon the work I'm currently immersed in. Um, I mean, my when I was a kid, the be-all and end-all of toy lines was what really got me started into uh, collecting toys on the secondary market was, was Mego's Official World's Greatest Superheroes. Right. The 8-inch cloth and plastic action figures that, that are, you know, revered as, as the most iconic, you know, to, probably next to superpowers the most iconic superhero action figures of all time. So that's what I grew up on, and I had those before I had Star Wars. And what happened was there were certain Mego superheroes that, that were such uh, released in such limited quantities that you maybe saw them once or twice at retail when you were a kid. And I'm talking when I was five or six or seven years old. I think I saw the Lizard or Mr. Fantastic or, or the Green Arrow figure maybe once at retail. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of money growing up. Um, so it was one of those things where I, I only got money, I think, when I was 10 or 11 because I could work like four paper routes. You could work pretty young in New York. So what I remember is I never had those as a kid. So when I was a senior in high school, I started working an awful lot, like probably seven days a week at, at this one drugstore, and then I, I had another business on the side. So ironically, I was going into the back pages of Toy Shop magazine. This is 20 years before I started working for them. And they had business card-sized toy box ads where people, before the Internet, where people were adver would advertise, we have Mego figures, give us a call and we'll tell you what our inventory is. So you used to have to cold call these people and say, hey, do you have a lizard or do you have a green arrow? And they'd say, yeah, we have it, it's $600. And then eventually you'd find that one person who was selling it for like 250 And I remember saving up for a couple weeks and, and having that 250 bucks. And so I sent out a money order. And about three weeks later, I got this, this green arrow, this Mego green arrow figure, and I just lost my mind. I said, <laughs> wow, if I work hard enough, I could get all the stuff that I never had as a kid. So I, I started saying, okay, I'm going to finish the DC stuff first, and then I'll finish the Marvel stuff, then I'll move to the Teen Titans, and then I'm going to get some of the vehicles, you know, I'll get the Batcave, and I'll get the... Batcopter and the Batmobile and the Batcycle, and then I want to make sure I have all the uh, the the gals, the super gals, and then I'm going to try and see if I can track down the secret identity outfits. And then after that, I got contacted by Krause, who said, "You know, you have a lot of GI Joe stuff." I said, "Yeah, I've got about 
85, 90% of the collab, the three and three quarter inch collection. They said, would you ever think about doing a book? So then I started using, um, years later, I started using yojo.com to finish that. So that's, that's what I've side, done. Yeah. yeah, that's what I've done over the last, let's say, 15 years is as I make money from my books or as I make money uh, from one of my other jobs, because I work like four jobs, I'll go back and I'll try and finish. Uh, I guess the best example I'll give is when I did this book, Totally Tubular 80s Toys, in 2010. <laughs> there were about 150 different toy lines in there, from Dino Riders to Inhumanoids to Princess of Power to The Big Five. Uh, and by the Big Five toy lines, I mean He-Man and the Mass of the Universe, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Star Wars, and Marvel and DC Comics superheroes. So I went back and I started, because the market crashed in 08-09 so badly... You know, I was buying Captain Action outfits. You know, those are the most iconic superhero toys ever. They were made in 66, 67, 68. Yes, yes. You know, I was buying them for a nickel on the dollar. You know, so I think I bought a, a mint inbox Captain Action Spider-Man outfit for like 1500 bucks, And that at one point was $18,000. Wow. So I went back and I, I finished those big five toy lines. Um, every figure, vehicle, weapon, accessory, creature, place that mailway promotional. And I then I went moved to the secondary lines like Princess of Power and GoBots and um, Inhumanoids and Centurions. And, and then I went to the tertiary lines and I moved to the quaternary lines. And, and so I've, I've tried to finish every, every major toy line. And whatever I'm working on currently, like right now I'm working on Transformers Classics, Volume 8, which kind of contains every single Transformers Universe biography. Um, in uh, 87, in 1987, they made a four-issue Transformers Universe. Um, they were collections of tech spec, the Transformers tech spec biographies. It's kind of like the uh, G.I. Joe Order of Battle. Yeah, just like G.I. Joe Order of Battle. They had the artists do, do new pictures. And then we kind of took all the individual biographies that they scattered in the random issues of the Transformers, Marvel's Transformers issues, like 47 to like 679 or something. We're going to collect them all together. We're going to throw in G.I. Joe uh, and the Transformers 1 to 4. So I'm in the middle of researching and calling up people from Hasbro in the 80s and trying to find out information on why there was never a G.I. Joe and Transformers combined toy line, and I found, finally found an answer to that, actually. And, um, and you know, going through my Transformers, and so right now, you know, to answer your question the long way around, my favorite toy line currently is Transformers because I'm, <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm immersed in it. That's what, that's what you're drowning in at the moment, right? Uh, so because I love all of this stuff so much, I mean, there are aspects... To every toy line that that really appealed to me, you know, they're like if they, you know, collecting toys. When I was in elementary school, basically saved my life. And so I look at these toy lines with great fondness, almost like they're family members. Are you sure we weren't separated at birth? Um, it, it, it's possible. Because <laughs> I, one of the things I talk about when I was a kid is that I was way more into toys and cartoons and just pop culture in general than anybody else that I knew. Mm. And the older I get, the more I realize, yeah, I wasn't the only one who was. I was just the only one because I grew up in a small town in in Texas, in Paris, Texas. And uh, had I grown up in a larger area, I might have find found more like minded individuals. And it sounds like you kind of went the same route. Well, and there was uh, no way childhood. to find like-minded individuals back then. Right, the internet was not a thing. No, you had carrier pigeon or <laughs> you know, snail mail, and that was it. So, so your favorite toy line is whatever you're working on at the moment. That's a legit answer. I get it completely. Do you have a particular item in your collection that you can kind of pick out as a favorite is it one of those Migos or is it the captain action that Migo green arrow really taught me a lesson um and what i mean by that is uh i i think my dad and i were driving on some back roads in upstate new york and he had to stop and get something at a hardware store and i walked in and 
I saw that Migo Green Arrow Mint on card, and I didn't have any money. He didn't have any money, so I looked at it. I must have looked at it for like 12 or 15 minutes, and I was probably seven years old. And then we left without me getting it, and I'd never seen it since. And there was no picture. There were no books. There was no internet, so I couldn't look up a picture of Migo Green Arrow. So I placed that order in like 89.90 through the back of the toy shop. And as I'm waiting those three weeks for this Mego Green Arrow figure to show up, I'm thinking about it in the back of my mind. I'm dreaming about this figure. I'm thinking, you know, I remember it. And he had a, uh, he had a bow. I think it was a wooden bow. And it had uh, a fine string in the bow. And I remember his, his gloves were like these these really detailed plastic gauntlets. And I remember that in his backpack, all the arrows could come out individually, and his hat was felt, and it had an arrow, uh, an arrow uh, a feather in the hat that actually could come out, and it was a real feather. And I was romanticizing this figure in my mind. Right. Then when I got the figure, I opened the package... It was a mint-in-box green arrow, and I popped him out, and I went, Oh, well, the boots are plastic, and <laughs> the gloves are kind of felt, and they're not removable, and the arrows are molded onto the backpack, and it's a, a soft plastic hat, and the arrow is soft plastic on a, onto the hat. And, and I still appreciate it. It's a great figure, and I never had it when I was a kid. So I think that taught me the lesson of... of Kind of be careful what you wish for. Um, you know, don't... What that taught me is don't get too caught up in in the getting aspect of it. Um, because it, it's always the having. It's not the getting. So, you know, and what that's done is I've got to realize, and a lot of people have to realize, that many of the toys that we compete over on the secondary market were made, if not in the millions like Star Wars, were made in the tens of thousands. So try not to, to overplay your hand when you're bidding on them. Try and recognize, and this is what I have to tell myself too, try and recognize that unless it's one of those uber rare items, that it's a once-in-a-lifetime deal. And I've had a few of those where I, you know, I'm at a flea market and I have to tell my wife, you need to stay here. I'm going to go drive to a bank machine, and I'll be back. <laughs> Block this piece with your body. Uh, unless it's one of those situations, you know, be a little more patient and, and do your research, and, and hopefully, ultimately, you should be able to, to come up with a solution to getting that one toy. Patience is always a virtue. Yeah, patience is always a virtuous trait, man. And, and that green arrow, even though, and, and, you know, you know the feeling of, the hole in my collection is closed up. Oh, my God. Absolutely. But then there's that niggling at the back of your mind, which is like, well, now that I've finished my official world's greatest superhero collection, you know, those Mego Planet of the Apes, those are nice figures. I, uh, I refer to collecting as uh, a, a low-level addiction because it is. It's, I, I call myself an addict with no vice, no, no illegal vice, because... You're exactly right. You fill that collection. You fill that one hole in your collection. You're like, okay, great. And then it's not long until you're, wait, what else can I go after now? I need my next fix. Right. Absolutely. That's why, yeah. you know, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. I, it goes right along with Napoleon wept for there were no more worlds left to conquer. Absolutely. And then he got kicked off to Elba and he didn't have to worry about it anymore. Exactly. But it's it's one of those things where in, in my work, there are certain things that, that surprise me when I'm doing my research. Um, you know, it's, uh, I'm very lucky to, to be doing what I'm doing and to take the, um, what I learned researching manuscripts, you know, going to the JFK library in the Hemingway room and researching Hemingway manuscripts for Farewell to Arms or, or Sun Also Rises and a lot of going to those conventions, they, that taught me how to get along with people, um, the people who created these lines, in a way that allows me to get the information that, that we need 
from these lines and then put it into my books. Um, you know, not so much with Star Wars, but with Transformers and G.I. Joe, because a lot of the Star Wars stuff is out there um, because it's so popular. But with G.I. Joe, making friends with Larry Hama, making, and Transformers, making friends with Bob Bogansky, uh, learning from them, uh, learning, I, I mean, I finally found the name of the person who presided over the Transformers line for Hasbro. And I don't think people have really talked to this woman in, in 30 years. So she probably knows some stuff. Right. And some stuff that nobody else knows. Right. So that's always very exciting for me. Because to me that says, oh my God, that's something when we do the second edition of my Transformers book, that's something I can inject into the flavor text that people may have not seen before. Because I'm not, I've never been a collector who says, Oh, I have this nugget of knowledge that nobody else knows. I'm going to hoard it and put it in my room, and only my best friends can see it when they come out. No. The second I learn something, it's my job to get it out there. That's outstanding. Yeah. And I'm the same way. As soon as I learn something, I just want to tell everybody I know. Yep. Well, I think it's my responsibility, you know, to do that because of what I do. So. And you mentioned you mentioned getting to to speak to this woman who presided over the the transformers line is there is there a single experience that you've had as a, as a result of your work that that you treasure that you wouldn't know otherwise have had the chance to experience were you not doing this sort of work uh in 2003 2004 when i was doing the research for my first gi joe book I was reviewing the file cards, and, and for those of you who don't know what file cards are, they're Combat Command file cards. They're like little baseball-sized carded biblia or, uh, biographies on the back of G.I. Joe packages. They've kind of become the industry standard for a lot of action figures. There's a bio card in the back. You clip them out. You collect them. Same thing as Transformers tech specs. I kept mine in a shoebox, yeah. Absolutely. So did I. And then I the rubber band wrapped around them. Comic bags around them to protect them. <laughs> so I remember I finally had, had kind of contacted Larry Hama and I was talking to him and I was at his place and we were sitting across from each other and I had a series of questions ready. And I asked him, you know, on the file card for the Crimson Guard commanders for Tomax and Zamot, you mentioned that in the 60s, Tomax and Zamot were involved in an officer's push, P-U-T-S-C-H, an officer's push that kind of overthrew the government in Algiers. I said, I did some research, and in the 60s, the members of the French Foreign Legion in Algiers overthrew the French government and, and you know, kind of rebelled against de Gaulle. Are you implying that they were involved in that revolution? <laughs> and he said, yes. <laughs> and I said, how come no one's mentioned this before? How come I, I can't find it anywhere? And he said, it's because you're the first person who's ever asked me about that in 20 years. <laughs> and I said, how is that possible? You know, like, uh, we were in that same day, I said, you know, the name for the, uh, there's a, a G.I. Joe vehicle called the bridge layer. Right. And it's, it's run by a guy named Tollbooth. And if you look at Tollbooth's file name, it's Chuck X. Goring. I remember that, that, yeah. Right. There are famous, there's a famous card player of Bridge named Charles Goring, <laughs> who's, who's, you know, and, and he made all these kind of mnemonic devices to, to kind of help him remind, remind him of things and when he's drawing, writing the book and and that's what, you know, when I made friends with Bob Budiansky, I did the same thing, asked him about how he named things in the Transformers world, um, you know, how he came up with the name Megatron, and he has a background in mechanical engineering. So there is a story about the name Megatron. There's a story about many of the names of those characters, and the word is, you know, the word to describe it is called characonym, uh, characonym. and it's it's... You know, it's it's what I'm working on right now for this for this Transformers uh, Classics Volume Eight. So this is what I like doing. I like doing the research and trying to find these nuggets that have never come to light before that that I can 
that I can write about, and then ultimately when, when my website drops, probably this summer, anything that I've written for, for IDW or Krause and these introductions is, is going to go up on the website so people can read it whenever they want to, because I've got so much stuff. I've got stuff on Thundercats, I've got stuff on Inhumanoids, I've got stuff on Air Raiders, I've got stuff on My Little Pony that, you know, it's never seen the light of day because I haven't had the opportunity to, to, to talk about it. You're gonna have to keep us posted on that because that's that's gonna be a sure. boon. That's gonna be a boon to the talking toys with Taylor and Jeff research. Hopefully, uh, it'll be useful. Yeah. Oh man, that's that's great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the book itself. Now, the book in question that just came out, and you were kind enough to get a review copy to me, is the Ultimate Guide to Vintage Star Wars Action Figures, 1977 to 1985. And uh, my initial reaction to the book is, I think you sold yourself short with the title uh, because, again, you. This goes far beyond the action figures. We get we get a listing for each of the playsets and the vehicles, and even the uh, collect the action figure collector cases, uh, storage cases, from Star Wars through Power of the Force through Jedi through Ewoks. This is this is a dream come true. I made the point. I made a comment in in my review on Coffee with Kenobi that. Most of this information you can probably find online somewhere, but there's mm-hmm. really something to be said, and there's something magical about being able to have it all in one place, in one book, with lots of pretty pictures. So, uh, first off, just let me say, I, I, I love the book. Terrific job on the book, and uh, I cannot wait to dive into your uh, your G.I. Joe book that I'm going to borrow from Taylor as soon as I get off of this call. Before I go buy a copy of my very own, of course. I would get you a comp copy of that book, but unfortunately, that book is is sold out. Um, and the the um, on the secondary market, they're they're kind of prohibitively expensive. So what I will say is there should be an announcement coming up in the next month um, when we're going to go to a third printing on that as well. Outstanding! A third printing on a book about toys. How great is that? I'm very very fortunate. Very, 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 very fortunate. Because if I tried to do this 15 years ago, it would have been a, a dull, wet thud in right. collective consciousness. So, you know. And I think, you know, again, the, the, the magic of the Internet, it's a lot easier to get to get people notified about things like this. Now, that being said, one thing I was going to ask you, uh, do you think these days, because we don't really have a good... As far as I know, a good toy magazine anymore. We don't have Toy Fair. We don't have the uh, the toy guide that you that you worked on. Um, I guess Lee's Action Figure Digest is it still even in print? I believe it is. Yeah, I believe it is. But it's hard to find. It's really hard yeah, to find. And it's, it's prohibitively prohibitively expensive. I think it's like six or seven bucks for each issue. Yeah, for each issue, you're absolutely right. Last I checked, it was it was like I think six or seven ninety nine, um, which you know I would love to get a subscription, but again, you're talking you know well over a hundred dollars a year right and um i i wonder if in the future if someone coming up now wanted to follow in your footsteps and start writing do you think it would be harder for them to get to get their foot in the door or do you think it would be easier with the proliferation of the internet it would be easier for them to get their their work online and seen what is your what is your take on that are you talking about uh, maybe a monthly publication like Toy Shop or Toy Fair or Lee's or Tomart? Well, someone who wants to do what you do, like for instance, you you know you started out writing the articles for these monthly magazines, sure. Uh, and uh, obviously, you had done a lot of work before that that got that got you noticed. But if somebody did want to to write these books for a living or wanted to start one of those, do you think it's it's harder or easier now? Oh, it would have been when you were doing it. Oh, I think it's far easier now. Oh, absolutely. You know, because these properties are are in the collective consciousness. Oh, God, it's far easier now. Oh, yes, absolutely. Let's get to that. Here's the the advice that I always give people. Listen, I teach at a a university, and I don't, I don't, sorry, let me correct that. I don't teach anymore. (laughs) I'm an administrator. I would love to teach. I just don't have the time to do it. And one of the last courses that I taught is a course I created called Writing for Publishing. And one of the best pieces of advice I give to people when they come up to me and ask me, how do I go about getting published? Or I'm working on something. I want to get it published. What do I do? And what I say to them is, you, 
don't more people talk about writing than actually write. Um, if you want, and, and here's the biggest mistake people make about writing any book. They write a book, and then they approach a book company. What you need to do is write a sample chapter of whatever it is you want to convey, then take it to a book company. Find out if it matches the direction that they want to take, because they have to clear it with marketing, and they have to clear it with Amazon. A lot of these bigger publishing houses work in conjunction with Barnes and & Noble and Amazon and blah, blah, blah. They've got to get them excited about it, get some feedback, and then they can come back to you and say, I like this. This is the direction we want to go in. You know, more people talk about writing, but, but a lot of people don't follow through. Everybody wants to be a writer. Right. Every single person in the world wants to be a writer. If you like sports, you'd love to write an article on sports. If you like walking, you'd love to write an article on walking. Everyone wants to be a writer. Just do it. Don't waste time talking about it. Do it. Tonight, if you have a hobby and you have a magazine somewhere in your house, open up that magazine to the front page where the indicia is right in the front. And it'll have the editor-in-chief's email address, their phone number, maybe their submission guidelines. Call them up tomorrow morning. It's a Monday. Call them up on a Monday and say, hey, uh, what are your restrictions what are your guidelines for submission? Ask them and then submit. You are never going to get anything published if you write something in a vacuum. You have to do it in conjunction with someone. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not discouraging self-publishing. I can't comment on that because I've never done it. Right. But I know that if it's... Uh, I would love to write a book about Thundercats... I would love to write a book about Starcom, but I don't think I would sell in the quantity that a book company would like. Plus, I don't think we'd reach the, the, the uh, page count that a book company would like. So for certain uh, uh, more specific publications, um, most, most uh, press will not deal with vanity publications anymore. So make a contact. Um, plus, you should, you should, if you want to get something published, you should probably practice writing as well. Right, exactly. That's a real problem. I get approached maybe two times a month by someone who wants to be a writer, who has never taken a, a literature class or, and I'm not taking, saying a college course. You know, really to be a good writer, what you need to do is read a lot. Because as a writer, all you're doing is mimicking whatever styles you've learned in your life. Exactly. You know, I've always discouraged creative writing courses. I think it's, it's in my opinion, it, it's never done anything for me. I think literature courses and, and more clinical stuff helps you more than, more than creative writing courses. Um, because you're being judged by people who are at your level. You know, if you want to become a better basketball player or a better football player, you don't play against... Uh, high school kids, you play against the pros if you want to better yourself, and it's the same thing with writing. You know, you want to be evaluated by people who are better than you. Um, so, you know, write. You know, read a lot, and don't just read comic books. Read everything you can. You know, a lot of the, the people who write in the medium of comics, they don't uh, just read comics. They read everything from the classics to pop fiction to horror to the New York Times Magazine, they read everything. So, and there's a lot of demand. There is more. There are more avenues for writers now than there have ever been since time immemorial. You know, there are so many, from Cracked to Mental Floss to BuzzFeed to the Huffington Post. You know, once you get your name established and you be, can become an expert on something then ultimately those people are going to come to you and ask you for submissions. But you've got to find out what you're really good at. All wise words. And I I tell people the same thing about podcasting because I'll hear people all the time say, you know, I really, I kind of like to do podcasting, but I don't know how to go about it. I'm like, just hit record on your phone and start talking. Absolutely. I always tell everybody podcasting is the most punk rock enterprise there is on the planet because there are no rules. Anybody can do it. 
and you don't even need that much equipment. And it's it's the same thing, like you said, with writing. All you really need is a word processor, or if, if all else fails, you just need a pencil and a piece of paper. And That's right. And you can do it. And uh, I, I, don't, do you, I don't know if you listen to the Script Notes podcast. It's John August and Craig Mazin, these two screenwriters in Hollywood. But their advice whenever anybody writes in is always, just write. Hmm. And I think you're, I, you're, sounds like you're sort of saying the same thing. Is it, and I, I completely agree with you. The only way to get better is to immerse yourself in everything. Because if you do, if you, if, if you're just reading comics, if you're just listening to one specific type of podcast, if you're just listening to one specific type of music, your, your vocabulary is going to be stunted. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That's a very good point. So that's wise, wise words from a wise man. And in true Star Wars cliffhanger fashion, we're going to cut it off there. To hear the rest of this interview and to hear the meat of the story of Mark's writing of The Ultimate Guide to Vintage Star Wars Action Figures, you'll have to listen to Talking Toys with Taylor and Jeff on Sunday to hear the rest. Thank you for listening. To find more episodes of Bantha Banter or other Marvin Dog Media podcasts, visit MarvinDogMedia.com. To keep up with all the happenings in the Bantha Banter universe, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Marvin Dog Media, Instagram at Marvin Dog Media, and Pinterest at Marvin Dog Media. This show has been a production of Marvin Dog Media, all rights reserved. How many times can we say Marvin Dog Media? Marvin Dog Media. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.